1: Thanks right off the top to our Patreon supporters. Your support is what means that making the podcast is possible, as well as all the other stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe. You'll get lots of extra goodies including extended episodes each week. Uh, Various specials, including our Fireside specials. Uh, The first one with Robin is out now. There's a second one coming very soon. Uh, If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll already know who the special guest on that one is and what we got up to. So subscribe to get access to that and all the other bits and bobs and enable the show to keep on keeping on. Nine Lessons for Spring is coming up very soon. April 16 and 17 at King's Place. These are the rescheduled shows from Christmas. Robin's hosting with lots of guests from the world of music and comedy and science. All profits going to charity as ever. And also, if you haven't got Robin's Linda Smith lecture, that's out now from Shambles and Go Faster Stripe. You can get it from the Go Faster Stripe website. There's a two hour version and a 70 minute version and a new recorded intro from Robin. And all three of those videos come in a handy download package for just £5. So go to gofasterstripe.com to get that. That is enough intro from me. So here is today's episode. Robin is joined by Helen Chesky to talk to Veronica O'Keen about her book, The Rag and Bone Shop. Here they are.
0: Hello, welcome to Science Shambles, Science Book Shambles, Book Shambles, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. It's definitely not Josie though, it's Helen Chersky today. Um, We are, this is, I I was actually just before we start recording talking about this, uh, this is one of those situations where we may well not get on to question two. Some of you probably don't even think we ever write questions in the first place uh, because we're going to be talking about the mind and the nature of memory as well which in the last 20 years I think in particular uh, it becomes sometimes deeply disturbing to find out uh, not merely the fragility of our memory but also the the palimpsest nature of our memory so we are talking to Veronica King about a fantastic book called The Rag and Bone Shop. Hello Veronica.
2: Hi Robin thanks for inviting me on.
0: No, really glad. I mean, this is—we'll get straight in there because this is—you know—you deal with this very well. I I was going to say very much from the the perspective of kind of in one way psychiatry and therapy, but but also not in terms of this fascinating thing that it. To me, as an outsider, and I think you might contradict this from what you're saying, but I felt that we'd reached a point now where psychology, and therapy, and neuroscience were properly. Overlapping that the understanding of the the material nature of the brain and the problems that can come from when the brain basically is just physically not as it should be. But you actually, in the book, say we're, we're still at quite an early stage of allowing neuroscience and, uh, and, and therapy to really work together.
2: Uh, that's right. Just by way of introduction, I'm a psychiatrist, so my specialty is treating people with mental illness. Um, I have a medical degree and during my undergraduate medical education, I learned about the brain as it, in the same way that I learned about the lungs. But of course I learned the lungs were connected to the heart and that you know they were inseparable, those two systems. But the way that we learned about the brain was in really very much in piecemeal. We learned about one part of the brain, brain controlling movement, another part of the brain controlling uh, sensory activity, informing us what was um, around us in our environment and nobody ever put it together. Um, so I am qualified a few years. It has to be said, I'm in my uh, now my 39th year of clinical practice. And I suppose I did my psychiatry training, uh, you know, 20, 35 years ago, really. But we got a we got a course, basically, in brain neuroanatomy. We got a course, basically, in neuropsychopharmacology. There was nothing that unified at all. Uh, Patients didn't get brain scans unless they had a neurological disorder. So the field of psychiatry and neuroscience is very young really it's probably only you know 30 30 40 years old and I have been luckily for me um, involved in the developing field of neuroscience within psychiatry and just to get back to your question about neuroscience and psychiatry or indeed clinical psychology there is it hasn't really made its way into clinical medicine yet what we know about the brain and perhaps that's because a lot of it hasn't um, say for example any new learning any new knowledge that we have in terms of brain function hasn't translated into clinical practice in a way that would help the diseases that we're treating it's not that it's abstract information, far from it, it's very materialist, as you've said, information and hugely important information in terms of each individual understanding the experience of what it is to live and you know what it is to see about how you work, how you see the world and how you process the world. But so knowing about that is very important i think it's really important for psychiatrists and i've been fighting to get the brain on the curriculum and it's very difficult because clinicians say well you know what relevance does that have how's that going to help my me with my 20 year old patient with schizophrenia who can't find a place to live and who's socially ostracized so the, the, there's always this tension. I'm not saying it's it's bad, but there's always a tension. I'm certainly um, would be one of the groups of psychiatrists who would be really pushing for, as you know, pushing hard for more neuroscience within psychiatry. For example, I think every patient who comes to us should have a detailed MRI brain scan, and they don't because psychiatry services is about funding preventing suicide. Um, You know, my view would be that the way you prevent suicide is by understanding depression more with more targeted treatments.
0: What is that line, or was that line, between what would be considered to be neurological and psychiatric? You were saying in terms of brain scans. I presume there's a, there would have been a kind of hazy area in between where that decision, should this be a neurological problem and a brain scan, or this is a psychiatric problem, I would imagine there was a kind of, yeah, a blurred, a blurred in between.
2: Very, very much so, and I think that's relevant to the first question you asked me, Robin, uh, basically once we found out the cause the brain cause of something it seemed to switch from psychiatry to neurology or to some other discipline um i give an example in the book of um uh, uh, was in its advanced stages it was taught it was thought to be a Uh, brain disorder that we didn't understand because the last stage of syphilis involves the central nervous system and the brain and once the spirochete that causes syphilis was isolated it was transferred to infectious medicines. Um, Similarly with epilepsy, epilepsy was a psychiatric disorder until they discovered it was due to uncontrolled electrical discharge in the brain, firing off bits of the brain and causing a person, different parts of the body to fire off unprovoked. Um, so psychiatry, th- there's a long tradition in psychiatry of handing over um, unknown brain diseases once they become known or understood to neurology. And I, again, would be very, would very firmly be in the camp of holding on to our um, you know, holding on to uh, psychiatric diseases because I think we're best equipped to understand them. And I think it, behavioral and experiential disorders, it should be a separate area. Um, as, it, as it stands clinically at the moment, most of the diseases that are motor or sensory, like Parkinson's, um, uh, neuromuscular dystrophy, and so on and so motor neuron disease they would be neurology or sensory diseases, diseases that basically are caused by either movement pathways, which have been defined in the brain or sensory pathways or pathways on the top of the brain, if you like. They're really the domain of neurology. And what I'd like to see is the deeper, the emotional and the memory and the integrative centers of the brain that bring everything together. In a sense, that's what psychiatry is at the heart of psychiatry but clinically even we would have areas which is called neuropsychiatry where the two overlap and um, they're very interesting both for neurologists and psychiatrists and over the years i've had some fantastic collaborations with neurologists on individual patients
3: well I just wanted to ask about like one of the things you do very beautifully in the book is you describe patients you know cases that you have seen and, and I think what's very nice is you also describe your reaction to those patients as one brain looking at another brain but I, I want to ask about the distinction you were just talking about because in this case you know if you have someone who studies the kidneys for example um you you don't really have a an idea of what you know Walking around as a person, I don't know what my kidneys are doing. I can believe they're doing it because I'm not in certain types of pain. But it's almost an abstract system. Whereas when a brain goes wrong, it literally talks to you. It's the only organ in the body that you could, like a, 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 this, uh, a phys- you know, a, a doctor can literally have a conversation with you. You can't go talking to your lungs. And I just wondered whether, like how that alters how you study it, whether people get squeamish about that almost, you know, it's I, I guess it's kind of easy to be clinically uh, dispassionate if you know it's a liver which is kind of a bit like a machine but it's talking to you how does that change <laughs> you know how, how you doctors you know respond to it i i think i
2: think Helm, that's a, that's a very profound question and i'm not sure in clinical practice many people would be looking at it from the point of view of what you're essentially describing which is which is metacognition which is looking at yourself, thinking, um, but of course we do that. We do that all the time, and I suppose that's one of the things about the brain is it is an organ that uh, that is primarily reflective. You know, it, it, well, it, the higher up you go in the primate chain, the more evolved you become, the more reflective you become, and I think it is squeamish, and I think most people. Avoided for that reason. It's it's very scary. It's like when you hear about physics and you hear there's no boundary to the world when you're young, and you know you're looking up at the sky and you just can't imagine the vastness of it. I see the brain very much like that: 68 billion neurons, all of which are connected. You know, it's exactly the opposite of what I was taught, which is that different parts of the brain subserve different functions it's all pervasively connected. And I think that's the really fascinating thing of the brain. And it's, it's so pervasively connected that the system in the front of our brain that is the most evolved of the systems has developed in order for us to be able to see that so that we can in a way extract ourselves from our environment to, to think and to reflect and to work things out. Whereas, as you say, kidney function, kidney function, it doesn't have a brain. Of course, it's connected to our brain and our brain is integrating our blood pressure, our water balance with the amount of water that we extract but, uh, or excrete and bring back into our blood. But the it, it, it's good that that's not conscious. I mean, that's another hugely clever thing. You know, our brain... If a brain is working properly only makes us allows us to be conscious about the things that matter and the things that matter are the way we mentate about our environment the way we cogitate about us as humans connecting to other humans and connecting to the world
0: i found it in in one of the first cases you talk about which is someone who's just given birth and they're postpartum and and they're uh, Uh, the experiences that they have I I found it very interesting the way that you kind of talk about the fact that for someone who's experiencing what we would consider to be delusions there seems to be this experience which is a false reality but nevertheless there's still a true memory you, you talk about uh, this particular mm-hmm. woman that she she believes that her baby has which apparently I'd, I'd not realised is quite a common uh, kind of illusion her baby has been swapped she believes that she's walking past the grave of the, her actual biological baby mm-hmm. and then you say that when she's recovered nevertheless when she has that memory of that experience of walking past that grave that we kind of would it be fair to say that we, we have to accept it's a true memory even though it's not a true reality,
2: that is absolutely it. Uh, we, I think, um, Edith, that that um, particular woman, I think she was a fantastic example of how we only have our brains. There is there is nothing else through which we filter the world. So if your brain isn't organising the information, um, well, then your brain is registering something else. And that registration is a a process of matter. It isn't a choice. It just goes into your brain in the same way that you breathe oxygen and your oxygen connects with your heart. That's what the brain does. It takes information from the environment through sight, sound, um, it's the five senses, and also the sense that comes up from our body, which is frequently forgotten, the interoceptive sense. And it just puts it all together so if any one of those systems are misfiring well then your brain just gets the wrong information and i suppose re- reality really is it's a shared sense of sensations because if your sensations are all working pretty well within your individual expansions and limitations well, then you're going to see the same thing as me. Of course, there's going to be huge differences in the way we even see and in the way we perceive what we see. But nonetheless, we're, we're sharing something that's within an average limit. So Edith wasn't doing that. She was hearing things and smelling things that weren't there in the actual reality, the common reality. I call it the common reality. But that was what she was hearing and what she was smelling. She couldn't smell what we were smelling. <laughs> she can't see what we we're seeing. She can't hear what we're hearing. She's hearing something else, and that is neural energy. You know, it's energy going in from the outside world as her brain sees it. Energy coming in from the uh, you know through sound waves, through uh, smell energy, and that's just putting neurons together in a certain way it's a it's a that's why you know it's a matter of memory it's it's matter it's real biological material matter and once those neurons are woven into certain patterns that represent that site but if she sees that site again that pattern of neurons is going to be reactivated so that is what she feels and that is what she associates it with so when edith came back to me and i was talking as psychiatrists do um about as it were re-entering the non-psychotic world and telling her as you know i would have in those days well you know that that didn't really happen and you know it was, it was an attempt to orientate her back into the normal world And, you know, she was such a clever woman. She really taught me so many things. And I I call it in the book, a prescient moment, when she said to me, yes, the events weren't real, but the memory is real. So if she'd said to me, I got a flashback when I went past the graveyard, it would have gone over my head. So I I think what she taught me was um, that particular thing about psychosis which is which is really um a very profound thing that our sensation and is all we have we only have our brains to understand the world and I think it does give one a very much deeper understanding of other people's perspectives really
3: and one of the things I was I mean it's sort of I'm interested in, in lots of things you've written about in the way the brain works, but I'm almost most of all, what struck me was that in many of these cases, you said, you know, you describe this, this person whose brain is not doing what might be expected, but it in at least some cases, this is treatable. And that strikes me as an amazing thing that you, you know, there's a system you describing this very complicated brain system, these layers in the brain, the bits that are consciousness and the bits that aren't, and the idea. That once you've understood that, that any of it's treatable becomes more and more incredible, almost as the complexity is revealed. And I just wondered what sort of um, maybe tell us a little bit about what how how is it? Because there's treatments, I guess, from the outside that might be drugs or you know things done to the outside of a person. That, you know, they have to go somewhere or see something. And there's there's them there's sort of working from the inside, like you know them thinking about things or you know them working on their own brain are they are they progressing together that from the outside and from the inside those ways of treating things
2: that, that's that's right helen i mean it, that's what happens normally really is you know we see something externally so there's light rays coming in and then we perceive it in our brain so we filter it through our memory systems in a sense memory is a neural filter for here and now experience, and uh, so your your memory eventually makes you up and makes you who you are, and that's um, you know that's what I said in the second part of the book. Really, is memory gives you your sense of self and your ways of perceiving, not just seeing but perceiving the world. So everything is simultaneously an external and an internal. Process. Um, If we didn't have memory, there would just be the external process. So all you would be doing would be seeing everything all the time, as if it was new. And I I saw that in one patient um, whom I call MM in the book. And it is absolutely shocking. Um, And she taught me, she taught me a lot. She was a young woman, she didn't have. Um dementia, but she was completely lost. She didn't remember from moment to moment where she was or who she was talking to. So she'd lost memory for time, place and person. And these are processed in a structure at the center of the brain called the hippocampus. So everything, she had a sensory cortex, so she could understand she was in a room She could even ride a bicycle. She could cook a dinner. So all of those motor functions were intact. And the memory for those motor functions and for speech was up here in her cortex. And it was all perfect. But the internalizing of it and the putting it all together wasn't there because the memory center was was, um, ablated um, by a tumor on both sides. So... I did a little experiment, and I brought her out from the examination room that we had been in for quite a while, maybe 45 minutes. And I brought her back into the room. And when she came back into the room, it was completely a new place for her again. She didn't know where she was. So it's, um, it's, it's fascinating, really, how much of our brain we take for granted, the internalizing thing that you, talk about and just moving on to treatments yeah I mean that they the most important thing is we don't know why the treatments we give to patients work uh, which may sound a bit scary to prospective patients but that is actually the case in you know quite a lot of medicine anyway but almost exclude you know all, almost everything in medicine uh, in psychiatry we're not 100% sure about how it works. We know what the neurotransmitters do. Um, We know what parts of the brain the neurotransmitters we're giving to patients work in because we can see that with scans. But until we really understand the way the brain integrates information, we're not really going to understand um, how drugs work. So if we take Drugs for psychosis, um, they generally speaking block dopamine in the brain. Everyone knows about dopamine that, well, everybody knows about the very reductive, um, what dopamine does it, you know, it's a reward pathway, but it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, it makes us remember certain things. It filters out other things, but one of the things we do know is if you've too much dopamine, you don't filter out very well. So I think what we're probably essentially doing when we're treating psychosis is we're reducing the filter so that information becomes a little bit more coherent and they just work. You know, I see them in clinical practice all the time. You have somebody who comes in, they might believe they're God. They, you know, they might believe they can control the weather. They might believe that their baby has been taken away and substituted with a changeling. Um, they may believe their body is um, possessed with something that's moving their organs. Whatever their psychotic experiences are, a few days after taking antipsychotics, these experiences begin to diminish And eventually over a period of weeks, these experiences go away. But I think that the challenge in psychiatry that these, you know, the the new understanding of experience and neuroscience and memories throws open to us is, is the one that Edith pinned for me when she said, yes, but the memories are real. So now we come in with the therapy and now we come in with giving people an understanding of, how they got the wrong message, if you like, from their brain. And um, then, you know, they can restructure world. I I, I talk uh, in the book about a woman who was, was very depressed for years and years and years. And she laid down no memories. And she had a bipolar disorder, so she went manic years and years and years later following this depression. And when she... Became manic. And we realized she'd lay down no memories for the years. That because she was so depressed, her brain was so slowed down that it wasn't firing up enough for the neurons to fire up and for her to make memories. So she thought she was back in a world that was 10 years old. She didn't understand new street signs, new street um, pedestrianized zones, uh, hairstyles, fashion. Everything was completely new to her. In fact, the currency had changed, believe it or not, in Ireland over that period of time. And she didn't know that. She hadn't left her house for years. And because she was so uptunded, the word we use, she hadn't come for treatment. And we had assumed we'd sent her appointments and we'd assumed she was okay. And she just decided not to come for treatment. So she had to internally reorganize her world and reorientate herself in a shared reality so a lot of the talking therapy that we give um, is about that reorientation. so we very much need a medical approach and a psychotherapeutic approach and now we're, we're we're on the dawn really of bringing into mainstream clinical practice experiential therapies like the um Psychedelic drugs that actually are creating pathways in your brain when you take them. Forging new pathways in your brain to, to allow you to have, I suppose, an improved sort of consciousness or at least something new that will help you break out of your depression and anxiety. We kind of know how they work.
3: When when a lot of the, it's one of the sad things, I guess, about the brain that we mostly learn about it when it goes wrong um you know because you can't do experiments in a very direct way on a human being so you kind of have to wait for it to go wrong but one of the things that you I was wondering how it affects your view of your own memory I mean you write about things like you know your sense of self is your biographical memory it's created through memories you have created of where you were and who you were with and the sort of things that you do and so you, you create a self that way and I was just wondering that when you're perhaps remembering something, you know, perhaps somebody asks you about something that happened when you were a child, do you, do you view it any differently, do you think, as a result of knowing what the brain's up to on the inside?
2: I, I do, actually. I think that when we become aware of things, we, um, we you know, just slightly modify the way we think about those things. You know, awareness is, um, knowledge creates more awareness. And that in turn influences, yeah, the way we see things and the way we remember things. And it's brought up a point in the book that I think is very important in understanding memory, which is that memory isn't static; it isn't a repository. And I think I kind of had that idea that you know memory was like a diary, and you know I'm going to go through the filing cabinet or back to the diary to see what I was doing in that day. But of course, it's not that at all. I'm Uh, I'm I'm perhaps oversimplifying my previous idea of memory, but you get the drift. And so memory is very much alive in the moment um, that you're in. And the interesting thing about memory is that it's being modified by what's happening to you currently. So whatever memories you have are modified when you retrieve them, because in, in in a way, by going back by putting a little electrical current or a neuronal channel firing a few neurons back to that memory that disrupts you know remembering something is is not just a consolidating process it's also a disrupting process and the memory that you've laid that you've laid down will change so i suppose there's two things first of all we're remodeling our memories the whole time. We're reshaping ourselves. And, uh, you know, Alice Munro, Jean Paul Sartre, and so many brilliant writers have said, you know, memory is the story that we tell other people about ourselves. And yeah, my story is, um, yeah, I've definitely solidified a story about myself. And that does contribute to my sense of self. Um, and I think as you get older, again, um, you wouldn't have this experience yet, but as you get older, you the way you see memory is very much in the context of a collective memory. So you, you get an idea of your place in a particular social process, a collective memory, and you get a, a very deep sense of history that you can also apply to previous generations. And you can see how history and changes in social environments influence the way you think now. And um, because you remember, when you're remembering something very vividly, you, you can almost go back to the way you remembered it, sometimes, and that changes. So it, it's, it's all terribly, terribly fluid.
0: See, I think that's, what's th- that's one of the best things to learn from it is, don't be so sure. Because you, you know when you see people arguing and that that's not what happened at all. Okay. Once you accept, and as you, as you mentioned quite a few times, but you know, that realisation of the subjectivity of our perceptions... That realisation, just in perfectly normal day-to-day, the fact that in every single room we're seeing things slightly differently, the way that we're reacting to the tone of voice of different people, all of those things, and then we're painting different pictures afterwards, and then as you said, you know, some of my strongest memories of my childhood, you know, I still accept them as memories... But at the, it's a bit like free will. To, it's something, you know that idea that maybe free will doesn't exist, but you kind of still have to operate as if it does. That's, there isn't really much choice there. And In the same way, you can still respect your memories, but just have a slightly looser grip on them and, you know, sometimes it just say, you know, you know, yeah, do you know what? Maybe that is what happened. or Maybe none of this happened. Maybe that didn't happen to you and this didn't happen to me. But we've got our story now. And, and in that way, I think it can be quite, uh, uh, you know, again, it like many great areas of science, the loss of certainty. Just that little bit more injection of, of a positive doubt, I think, anyway.
2: I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's very, I think it's very characterological as well, because... I have somebody who's very close to me who shared childhood memories with me. I've just given it away, actually, that it's uh, probably something in my family. But that particular person remembers things that I don't remember and I'm always fascinated by them. And I say, well, you know, tell me what happened then, tell me what happened then. And I get these stories and, you know, I partly borrow from her memory, partly. But I'm also aware that she changes her memories much more than I do. And I don't remember very many things. I had just a lot of childhood amnesia. And I think that's because I was happy. So there was nothing, you know, dreadfully traumatic that happened to me. I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. You know, I had, a, I had a very nice childhood, good parents. Um, so, But but this person you know, I've noticed when because I go back to her and I say, well, you know, tell me about that again. And she gives me a different version. And now I'm very sceptical about people who have these fantastic memories of childhood. Like one person said to me, oh, I remember the first time I sat up in the pram. And I'm deeply sceptical because they either had, you know, a hippocampus and a brain that was developed, you know, way outside the norm um are you know they're confabulating and maybe they have a picture of themselves in the pram and their mum said to them you know oh that's the first time you sat up in the pram i'm not i'm not saying it's completely confabulated but at the same time it's um you know i i take it all with a grain of salt all these very very early memories and the other important thing um Robin, in the whole memory area, is we're much more certain about place than anything else. And I've I've written about this in the book because I think it's I think it's really fascinating. And you're talking about groups of people arguing about oh, when something happened and you know, who was there. And there's never any doubt about the place, you yeah. know, oh, we were there, we were there, and then you know, then it's, oh, I remember this happened and that happened before that. And, and somebody else says, no, actually, that happened after that. But everybody is in the same place. And it's like that thing, you know, where were you when, um, you know, when Kendi was assassinated? I'm sure you two weren't born. But anyway, uh, or where were you, you know, when Elvis Presley died? Uh, where were you during the Twin Towers? You know, people, people want to know where you were. We place things. We locate things, you know. Are you in a good place at the moment? Uh, that phrase, which I'm not that keen on, actually, but uh, to put it mildly. But you know, we use place a lot.
0: Yeah, that's such a. We've got. We've run out of time already, and there was. And I wanted to so much talk. We'd have to do this again if possible, because. Uh, your literary references are fantastic and that's what i one of the things that i enjoyed a great deal was your your use of things like the yellow wallpaper by perkins gilman to look at uh, those ideas you know virginia wolf and some fantastic beckett quotes as well so i'm almost glad we haven't talked about these things because now people have to go and buy uh, the book to find uh, the uh, uh, i love that i've not, never seen before i'm 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 not an intellectual all i am is a feeling that's such a great beckett line
2: Ah. Oh. <laughs> I know. And everybody thinks the opposite, you know, so it's it's just,
0: yeah.
3: But very briefly, perhaps just tell us about the title, because I think it's a great oh, yeah.
0: title. Oh, yeah, we haven't even got to that, have we? And wow.
3: um, just, you know, <laughs> sure we've got a minute to cover that, because, it. yeah, tell us where that comes from.
2: Well, the, the book is called The Rag and Bone Shop, um, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. But the, the main title, The Rag and Bone Shop, comes from a poem by WB Yeats called The Circus Animal's Desertion. And certainly even the first time I read it when I was very young, I found it um, very visceral line. He's talking about when he was young and, you know, we're all vain when we're young and and not vanity in the way we mean it now. I I guess, you know, vanity in in a more old fashioned meaning of the world. We're very much trying to establish ourselves in the world. We're very much in the world, conscious of how we are in the world. Um, And then as we age, we're, uh, you know, we're not in the world as much because younger people are coming up. Um, But Yeats was a famous statesman in Ireland. He was really central to the Cultural Revolution. And he was there at the formation of the state. He wrote, you know, fantastic poems about the formation of the state and the the anguish of the Civil War, and also, you know, he was just a, a, an amazing chronicler of those events, but he's he's looking now in the classroom at the young people, and he's saying, you know, the, the ladders of vanity that brought him up to the, like a circus animal, onto a stage, these have all been dismantled, and he now has to lie down in the rag and bone shop of the heart. So, I feel it's just that thing that's really deep that is so private and sometimes almost inaccessible to ourselves because uh you know we're, we're caught up in external things a lot of the time but i do think it's important for us all to try and you know get down and dirty into our own rag and bone shop sometimes
0: well, thank you so much for joining us, Veronica. Yes. I said there's there's so much in, in, in this book and it's so beautifully written and it will also mean that you then want to go off and read everything else, sometimes for the first time, sometimes for a turn from, from Sartre's nausea to Mrs Dalloway. Um, so you, thank you very and it's out in paperback now. I think it is, it has come out in paperback, has not it? As, it as, has. So yeah. Rag and Bone Shop is out in paperback from Penguin. Um thank you very much to everyone who supports us for our Patreon. Uh do check that out. Uh go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton. Thank you very much to Helen Chersky as well. We'll be back probably next week. And and thank you in particular to Veronica. Bye-bye. <laughs>
1: Yes, thank you very much for listening. Veronica's book is out now. Signed copies of Robin's book still available from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop, cosmicshambles.com slash shop. Support us on Patreon, Book Shambles. Uh, God, that was a mess, wasn't it? Patreon.com slash Book Shambles is what I was trying to say. CosmicShambles.com has got all details for upcoming shows and everything else. Don't forget to like and rate and review Five Stars on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.
0: Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.